0: Last week, we began a new series looking or getting back into the Gospel of Matthew. And today, I want to direct our attention to the six verses at the end of Matthew chapter 11 that uh, Ian so hopefully read to us a few moments ago. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you were there uh, or on your phone or whatever you're using. We're going to look at this brief passage. Let me begin with a story that I hope will help us to grasp uh, what is going on in these verses. Colin Cowdery was one of England's greatest ever cricketers. Uh, He died just a touch over 20 years ago and his memorial service was held in Westminster Abbey in 2001. It was a magnificent event. There were celebrities and cricketing stars from all over the world who flew in. Some of them took part in the service. And even a former Prime Minister, John Major, gave the main address as part of this memorial. Apparently there was even a special song written for the occasion. But the most moving moment in the whole of the service was when one of Cowdery's own sons came forward to speak about his dad. Sometimes one of the worst things about funerals can be when the minister doesn't even know the person who's died. But here in this memorial service was someone who really knew Cowdery. He could say things that only a son could and would be able to know. I think this uh, gets to the heart of what's going on in these verses here at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Here is the ultimate son speaking in glowing terms about his great father, Jesus has inside knowledge. And what he says is the overflow of the most intimate relationship. And so his words here have tremendous weight. They're moving and meaningful and profoundly significant. The first thing that I want you to notice here... It's the first three words. At that time. could easily skip over that. This is why we spent some time last week looking at the background context. And this is, if you were here last week, this is actually a time of great crisis. I, I wonder whether... You feel that we, we all, at some point, as we look back over our lives, have, at that time, kinds of moments, don't we? Maybe 2020 will be a significant one in our lives. One day, you might find, some of you might find yourself talking to your grandchildren and trying to explain to them what COVID was all about, and you'll preface it by saying, at that time... It's a crisis. For Jesus here, the crisis, of course, is that people refused to believe in him. Despite what he's doing, despite what he's teaching, it seems that people have no idea who he is. They have no idea where he's from. They have no idea who his Father is at that time. We could easily imagine, couldn't we, a supremely gifted musician living in a world where everyone else can barely sing in tune. It would be great to sing at all, wouldn't it, at the moment? But imagine if you were uh, some kind of musical uh, supreme musician, And everyone else who's tone deaf, you would feel like a fish out of water. Jesus, the Son, who knows and loves the Father, must have felt something of that kind of tension. Jesus has come from his Father and people are blind. And with this crisis background, we might expect Matthew to write, at that time, Jesus got really depressed Because his plans hadn't quite worked out. Or at that time Jesus was really sad because so few responded. But no. What does Matthew actually tell us that Jesus does at that time? At that time Jesus said, I praise you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. What does Jesus do at that time of crisis? He throws up his hands and prays with a burst of spontaneous joy. Oh, Father, I thank you. I praise you that this is the way things are. I praise you that this is the way you are. I thank you that this is the way things should be and must be. In the middle of rejection. The thing that stands out here is that the joy that Jesus has comes from somewhere else. Jesus refers here to the Lord of heaven and earth as his father. No one had ever spoken quite like that before. Jesus here is confident that his father is good. And that his father is working everything out according to his pleasure. Jesus here is not weighed down or perplexed. But filled with gladness that his father is in total control. And knows exactly what he's doing. And that what he's doing is supremely right. What gets me about this prayerful outburst is that Jesus seems to stop mid-prayer as he realises the truth of what he's just said. The word yes in verse 26, I, I think it ought to be in capitals with an exclamation mark after it. It's as if Jesus prays and then stops and goes, yes, yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It's almost as if Jesus wants to stop mid-prayer and caress the beauty of this truth in his fingers. Jesus is glad that his father is not in two minds. He's not mulling over what he should or shouldn't have done. The father isn't needing to learn from his mistakes. There's no miscarriage of justice that has happened here the father is at work and he's pleased with his work and whatever is going on at that time the problem isn't what the father's doing matthew is underlining for us here that at a time of crisis jesus is not responding on the back foot Jesus isn't driven here by fear, uncertainty, or anxiety. As Jesus faces difficulties in this hard world, he is neither in despair nor frantic. He is resting, resting in the fact that his Father is glad to order all things in the way that he sees fit. Now, as Jesus speaks here in these few verses, out of his relationship with his father, there are three different things going on here. First of all, as we've seen, there's a prayer. And then in the middle section, there's some words of explanation, we might call them. And then in verse 28... This little section reaches a climax with this incredible invitation that Jesus gives. So as we try and open up this little section, let's break this up using three very simple headings. First of all, I want to say that Jesus' prayer here points us to the attitude that we ought to have. As Jesus reflects here on the disappointing response of people around him, his reaction is essentially to be thankful that his father hides himself from the proud and reveals himself to the humble. He praises his father, the Lord of heaven and earth, Because he's hidden things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus, I think, holds two truths here in perfect balance. The first one is that he emphasises here that ultimately his father is the one who is in control. God is the one who reveals himself to or hides himself from people in this world. The first great emphasis here is on our human need for and the reality of divine revelation. It isn't we who sit in judgment over God as if he was somehow under us, but that he is the sovereign Lord who weighs and measures us But Jesus here clearly also highlights another truth, that we humans are all accountable for our own attitudes. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that God hides himself from the clever and reveals himself only to simpletons. But Jesus is saying here that there is a kind of cleverness that is corrupted by our human pride. Jesus is not condemning here human intelligence and saying that that's a bad thing. What he's condemning is the sinfulness of our human arrogance. Jesus is saying here, That God cannot and will not be found by people who somehow think that they know better than him. Our spiritual pride before God is therefore a serious and deadly issue. I wonder whether as we hear Jesus praying in this Spontaneous, spontaneous joy here whether this has been his own experience. Those who were trusting in their own wisdom and knowledge and study in fact the ones who seemed to do that religiously were the ones who were most resistant to him. And it seems that the poor the outsiders, the failures The nobodies were the ones who so eagerly grasped him. And Jesus burst so in prayer, I praise you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the one and revealed them to the other. This unexpected burst of joyful prayer should teach us something about the attitude that we should have. Do you remember the words of Jesus earlier in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? That little passage known as the Beatitudes. It's almost Jesus' manifesto for his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth and so it goes on do you see that jesus turns the values of this world upside down the world prizes self-confidence self-assertion self-sufficiency but jesus is filled with joy here because his father loves things when they're the opposite way around the Father loves humility and dependence and faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit. At that time, Jesus praises his Father because this is the way things are. Secondly, Jesus' explanation here points us to the unique role that he has. We could spend some time discussing and debating the identity of Jesus, but but actually what we have here is the opportunity to hear him in his own words. In this short section, we hear the son speak of his relationship with his father. And he, he says four crucially important things. First of all, in verse 27, look with me. Jesus says that all things have been entrusted to him by his Father. I, I think we could imagine the example, couldn't we, of maybe a business owner who, 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 who essentially puts his business affairs in the hands of a manager. He delegates um, his authority to this manager to to manage the day-to-day operations. But what a thing for Jesus to claim here that his father has put all things, everything, into his hands. Secondly, Jesus says here that no one truly knows the father except the son. Uh, so no no one, no one truly knows the Son except the Father. We'll come to that fairly. Here, here Jesus is so vast, so infinitely glorious that the only one who can fully plumb the depths of His personhood, being and character, who He really is, is His Father. But this means that the first part where the father entrusts everything into Jesus' hands is not some kind of risky operation where the father's hoping that the son can cope with that. As the father reflects on who could shoulder the burden of managing everything, the one he settles on as the perfect candidate for that job is his son. The Father entrusts all things to the Son with full confidence because He knows Him so perfectly well. Thirdly, Jesus makes another equally staggering claim here as He turns that idea around. No one fully knows the Father either, except the Son. So this is not a one way street. this is a weighty and mysterious mutual relationship think about this only God could fully know God only because God is so vast only God in his vastness could fully know him When Jesus says here that only the Son knows the Father, he is saying, I share his nature. We are, in fact, completely one. Each of us knowing and reveling and marveling and delighting in the other. And then, fourthly and lastly, Jesus gets to the point of all this at the end of verse 27. Are you ready for the punchline? No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The point that Jesus is making here is that he has a unique role in revealing his Father to humanity because he knows him He has come to show him. And like Colin Cowdrey's son in that memorial service, the words that Jesus speaks here about his Father are the direct result of his unique relationship with the Father. He speaks from his intimacy. Jesus knows what he's talking about. His words have weight and authority. Jesus isn't here speculating or giving his opinion as if it's one opinion among hundreds and thousands of others. Jesus is in a category all by himself. And Jesus here is saying that it isn't possible for us to know the Father Or to come to God in any other way. Only he truly knows the Father. And only he can reveal him to us. Our human wisdom alone is not enough. To find him or define him or confine him. Jesus is the unique and indispensable intermediary. And so we come to the great climax of this passage where this unique and special revealing role that Jesus has, that flows out of his intimate relationship with his Father, is now expressed as a direct invitation to all mankind. To find solutions to the problems of life, how? By coming to Jesus, the Son. So, thirdly, and lastly, I want to suggest that Jesus' invitation here points us to the great opportunity that we have. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus places no limit here on this invitation. He simply says, Come to me. Not come to a church, not come to a religion. Jesus says, Come to me. In this sense, our faith is not a commitment to a set of rules or a code of ethics or to a philosophy or system or scheme Jesus invites us to come to him personally so that true rest is found in being united to him and just look who he invites to come Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anyone and everyone who feels their need and who wants to come is invited to come and can come to him. I do find it striking here, the descriptions that Jesus uses. Jesus uses two very different descriptions of people here. And I want you to notice that one is active and one's passive. The first group are the weary. I I think they're the energetic ones who are tired of struggling. These are the ones who are active, but they seem to work so hard for no gain, no satisfaction they've been very busy but they haven't found what they've been so striving to find and they're tired but jesus describes this other group as being burdened that that to me seems more passive jesus is portraying people with that description as those who are hemmed in their lives perhaps just seem trapped they they've got no energy They feel oppressed and weighed down by the sheer impossibility of life. Notice that Jesus here doesn't give either the weary or the burden something else to do or something else to try. What Jesus does is that he calls both groups to come to him. Jesus sums up the good news that comes to us from the compassionate heart of his Father in five words. I will give you rest. What is this rest then that Jesus speaks of here? Let me close by giving you two illustrations. The first comes from a very famous book called the pilgrim's progress many of you will be aware of uh, this it was written by John Bunyan in the 17th century while he was in prison in Bedford for preaching the gospel it's written as a kind of allegory of the Christian life and in the early part of the story the main character Christian here he is He sets off on his epic journey, but as he walks, he stumbles under the the, the weight of this burden, this load that he's carrying on his back. Eventually, Christian comes to a little hill, and as he looks up the hill, he sees the cross where Jesus died and as he as he looks upon the cross he feels the straps of his burden crack and break and the burden rolls off his back back down the hill and into what seems to him to look like an empty tomb and bunyan writes at this point in pilgrim's progress then was christian glad and lightsome and he said with a merry heart He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. What Bunyan sought to portray is that Jesus gives us rest because he himself has carried our greatest burden. What Christian was carrying on his back all the time was the sin and guilt and shame that would separate him from God. And that burden has been taken off our shoulders and laid on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus bore our shame and sin. God's displeasure at our sin Fell on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. Jesus died so that we can live and because of his sorrow we can know and enjoy and rest in the love of God for us. What about the second illustration then? Look with me at verse 29 here. What Jesus says here is part of this great invitation take my yoke upon ye and learn from me. When Jesus says that he's using an ancient farming picture where two oxen would be joined together by a wooden yoke placed across both of their necks so that they can work together as they plough and often what used to happen was that uh, a strong, more mature ox would be put together with a younger, weaker ox so that the younger one could learn how to plough with the older one taking the, 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 the majority of the weight. I, I didn't know this, apparently, just reading this this week, there was a legend, apparently, that Jesus, in his carpenter's shop, made the best yokes in Galilee. tailor-made to perfectly fit each ox. Maybe the sign above his shop said, My yokes fit well. Either way, in this passage, Jesus says, My yoke will fit you well. So not only does Jesus remove our burden of guilt by bearing it himself, But he teaches us here that our lives are to be lived in harness with him. I suppose there's a sense, isn't it, in life that we will all at different points in our lives yoke ourselves to something or someone. But to be yoked to Jesus is to be safe and to be free. Can you hear something of the heart of Jesus? He's not a slave master who is seeking to exploit and oppress us. He is a loving saviour whose joy and pleasure and delight it is to liberate and inspire and empower and help Jesus offers his love and power, but he does it gently and humbly. I think one of the most interesting things about this picture is that it does involve work, doesn't it? It's kind of a weird thing. Take my yoke. The yoke was a symbol of work. Take my yoke upon you and you'll find rest. It, it involves purpose. I, I don't think this is restful because Jesus somehow demands less but because he's there to share the Lord. This is not an invitation for us to put our feet up on the sofa but a promise that as we follow Jesus through all the ups and downs of life he will be with us and he will be infusing his life and power and presence through us and in us do you sometimes wonder where you can find true deep lasting inner rest don't we strive for this all the time we look for it in our stuff in our status in our careers in our relationships true rest is found in following Jesus, hear the invitation of the Son who knows what he 's talking about. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and i I will give you rest, the rest of sins forgiven, and the rest of purposeful activity the question is will you come there's a great old bishop of liverpool in the 19th century jc ryle who once said this if we have come to christ already let us cleave to him more closely and if we've never come to him At all, let us begin to come today. May it be so for His glory. Amen.